Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Um, we, uh, we're looking tonight at Luke 17, so please open that in front of you. Remember last week, we saw how Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's uh, heading to the cross, and along the way, he's teaching his disciples of what it means to live in his kingdom. Tonight, you'll see from your minty-looking handout, we're looking at the theme of readiness. Disciples of Jesus' kingdom need to be ready. So uh, do, uh, do open that up. Should I lead us in prayer? As we make a start. Father, we praise that you are indeed a good shepherd. That you comfort us. You tell us what we need to hear. And you comfort us with a rod and a staff. And Lord, having read this passage, it does seem like this passage seems more like a rod than a staff. More like a challenge than a comfort. But I pray it would be a comfort that will help us. That it would in some way comfort us and fix our eyes on where we should be looking. Please show us our saviour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The evangelist Rico Tice tells the story of the time he was in one of those really posh dining clubs in London. You, you might know those really posh ones. You have to wear a, sort of a jacket and suit and tie to. And uh, he arrived a little bit earlier than the rest of his dinner guests. So um, the maitre d' invited him to stand in this lobby area. And he was just standing there for a moment. But he wasn't alone. There was another sort of man in there with him. Chap in his sort of late 20s, early 30s. And uh, he had this sort of thinning, sort of receding hairline. And to Rico, he just he looked at him and said, like, he, do, he does look vaguely familiar. I think I know this guy from somewhere. But being British, they don't, he didn't really engage in polite conversation. He, he just sort of ignored him for, for, sort of for, the, for the time he was there. He just sort of stared at the ground in silence, avoiding eye contact. And after about five minutes of staring at the ground, the maitre d' came back in to, to take the other gentleman to his table. And the maitre d' said, uh, your highness, this way. And Rico's like, no, it was Prince William. <laughs> He'd been staring Prince William, his future king, in the face. And he just didn't recognise him. He just didn't recognise him. In our passage today, it begins with a very similar situation. Did you see that in verse 20? Just look down with me, I'd love to show you this. It says this, verse 20. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is among you. Following the the little footnote there. The kingdom of God is among you. It seems that Israel's religious leaders, they desperately wanted to be in God's kingdom. They wanted to eat at that heavenly banquet. They wanted to bask in in God's presence. But when would it come? That's what they asked Jesus. When would this kingdom come? It seems they expected some sort of cosmic signs to sort of mark the coming of God's kingdom. Fireworks in the night sky, maybe. Some sort of unmissable, cataclysmic event. Some unmissable sign. When would it come, they asked Jesus. But a bit like Rico... They're missing the blindingly obvious. The kingdom of God was in the very midst of them. In fact, they are standing face to face with the king of God's kingdom. He'd only just cleansed ten lepers, but they don't see the signs and they don't recognise their king. Now for Rico, it didn't really matter, did it? That he didn't recognise his future king. He missed a once in a lifetime opportunity. And arguably so did Prince William. But really, that's it. That's all he missed. 
But for us here tonight, if we miss who Jesus is, if we miss his kingdom now, well, we'll miss out when the king returns. In our passage, we'll see that Jesus claims to be the son of man. The son of man Ross was telling us about earlier from Daniel 7. He's the one who's been given all authority by God to judge the earth. He's the one who's going to decide our eternal destiny. Which means if we miss his kingdom now, we will miss out when the king returns. So the reason you should stay tuned for the next few moments is simply so that you do not miss out. Do you have FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you have that? Don't miss out. This message is not just for folk here tonight who might be looking in on Christian things. No, notice how most of this passage from verse 22 onwards is addressed to Jesus' disciples. Jesus doesn't want his believing people to miss out either. So whether you're here tonight and you're new to, to Christian things, just investigating Jesus' claims, or whether you've been following Jesus for years and years, here is a message for you. If you miss his kingdom now, you will miss out when the king returns. You'll see from uh, your handout how Jesus has structured this, this passage. He's telling his disciples really what his return will be like. And I've got uh, five things here on your handouts. The first one is this. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus' return hasn't happened yet. Let, sh- let me show you that from verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. I was told recently about another church in London who who hold these sort of regular outreach events in in a local pub. Um, They host these sort of Music evenings, I think. So they hope they sort of get musicians in, play a bit of music, and then someone does a talk. And, and on this particular evening, they were going to think about the second coming. And they put this musician to come and play. I think he was a guitarist, but he was running pretty late. I think there was some problem with the underground or something. So rather awkwardly, an announcement was made. Sorry, everyone, our, our, our act is a bit late. Please talk amongst yourselves. Uh, perhaps uh, grab another drink at the bar. He'll be here in a moment. Half an hour later still going to guitarist and the event organizers is getting really awkward now the place is really full people are mustering amongst themselves when's this when's this thing going to start i'm gonna to have to leave soon and uh, so the guy goes oh he'll be here he'll be here soon please wait please wait and perhaps get another drink from the bar another half an hour later people are getting pretty tetchy pretty it's getting people are getting annoyed frustrated with waiting and at that point the guy stands up to give a talk about the second coming and how painful it is to wait. It was, a, it was a ruse. It was a ruse. There never was an act. I think it was quite clever. Well, for many of us here, I know we are, we are desperately waiting for Jesus to return. It's painful. We wake up in the morning. We, we want to see an end to our loneliness, perhaps, or, or our suffering. We endure a day at work. And we long to see an end of being marginalised as a Christian. We come home, we read the papers, and we read about how Christians are being beheaded and churches are being blown up. And we want to see an end to persecution. And then we go to bed at night, our head hits the pillow, we look back over our day, and we want to see an end to our sin. 
Christians pray, come Lord Jesus. We pray, let your kingdom come. As Christians, we are longing for Jesus' return. And it's painful waiting, isn't it? Which is why when people come along and tell us, actually, we don't need to wait, our ears prick up. If people tell us, actually, you can have health and healing now, you don't need to wait. Uh, People tell us uh, you can have an end to your sin now. You don't need to wait. People tell us you can have popularity and success and prosperity now. You don't need to wait. And it's exactly what we want to hear. Jesus tells us, do not go running after them. The king has not yet returned. He's not yet brought back. Those things which he promises. And when he does return, you will not miss it. You cannot miss it, in fact. Look at verse 24. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a lightning storm. I remember when I was a kid, we were in Florida. It was uh, the night time. And we were caught in this almighty storm. And we had to pull our car over to the side of the road. It was pitch black. And all the other cars had to pull over as well. And we just got out of our cars and just saw this majestic scene. As this pitch black night sky suddenly became like midday. With these streaks of lightning shooting across it. And this almighty thunder. You couldn't miss it. You could not miss it. And you will not miss it when the Son of Man returns. It will be a cosmic event. And friends, that's the day we look forward to. That's when there'll be an end to our pain. That's when there'll be an end to persecution. That's when there'll be a full end to our sin. But the road to glory is the cross. He says, before the Son of Man returns to judge, the Son of Man, the Son of Man must suffer many things. So Jesus' return, it hasn't happened yet. So the application here for us is so, so don't be fooled. Don't be sucked in by any form of Christianity which promises now what only Jesus can deliver when he returns. Don't be sucked in by any teaching which has no place for suffering and no place for rejection. Don't be fooled by anything which masquerades as Christian broadcasting which just tells you exactly what you want to hear. The Joel Osteens and the Joyce Mayers of this world. Watch out. Watch out. If the Son of Man had to suffer before his glory, well, so will we. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Well, the second thing Jesus tells us about here, about his return, is that it will be very, very sudden. Point B. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom... Fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. At two minutes past eleven, 
on the 9th of August, 1945, life was just carrying on as normal in the Japanese city of Nagasaki. Adults were beginning their days at work. Teens were down the park sipping drinks out of uh, Coke bottles or the equivalent. Kids were beginning their classes at school. And then the atomic bomb was dropped. Some friends of mine went to Nagasaki recently and they've got this museum commemorating the dropping of the bomb. And they described one room which is just uh, full of these watches and clocks which they recovered from the scene. Each of them stopped at two minutes past 11. And described in the next room how there's some remains of a, the bones of a human hand clutching this melted lump of glass, which was a, a drinks bottle. And there's also in that room a little metal charred lunchbox which opened within it the perfect remains of a child's lunch for that day. Life was carrying on as normal. And then 80,000 people died. It was sudden. The tragedy of it, if you didn't know, is that they were forewarned. The Hiroshima bomb was dropped about three or four days before. And the museum has these samples of all the leaflets which the Americans, they dropped on Nagasaki before the bomb. And these, these, uh, these leaflets told the people in their own language about the power of this atomic bomb. About They warned the citizens to flee the city, get out of the city, stop fighting in the war. But of course the tragedy was they didn't heed the warnings. They didn't get safe. Well, so it was on the day when God destroyed the earth with a flood. And on the day when God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. People were going about their everyday business. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They were marrying, getting married. They did not turn from their sin. They didn't listen to preachers of righteousness, Noah and Lot. And they did not get safe. And they were destroyed. Well, if the return of the Son of Man to judge the earth will be like that, if it will be that sudden, if the effects of his return will be that destructive, if even more, well, surely the application for us here tonight is that we get safe while we still can. How do we do that? How do we get safe? Well, it might surprise you, but the solution is not morality and it's not religion. If you think that um, somehow being a better person, pulling your moral socks up, or perhaps being a bit more religious, if you think that will help you, if you think that will save you from the blast of God's holy wrath on the day the Son of Man returns, it's a bit like thinking the walls of your caravan will save you from an atomic blast. It will not. The solution is not our morality. The solution is not our religion. Well, what is the solution? Well, Noah, he, he ran into the ark, didn't he? And Lot, he ran out of the city. Well, we run to Christ. He is our safe place. For the Son of Man not only has authority to judge the earth, he has authority to forgive sins. Which is why we must recognise him while we still can. Friends, here's our safe place. We must get safe while we still can. Jesus continues in verse 30, telling us that his return will be not only sudden, but final. It will be final. Look at verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, 
no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus here, he's inviting us to, if you like, reassess our priorities in the light of his sudden return. And let me ask you a sort of a rhetorical question. If, if you were, if you're in your, up in your bedroom, you sort of open the, the curtains of your bedroom, you've you just seen a very bright, bright flash outside. It sort of wake you up in the middle of the night. And you open your curtains and you see that over the city of London is this enormous mushroom cloud. What would you do? An atomic blast has just gone off right in the city centre. The fallout is coming your way. What do you think you would do then? Would you pack your bags, collect some of your stuff? Would you go downstairs and perhaps pick out your favourite photo albums? Maybe download uh, your hard drive onto a disc so you don't lose any of your material. Would you, would you do any of that? Seeing the blast come your way? No, you wouldn't, would you? You would not do that. You would grab your family, throw them in the car, and drive as quickly as you could in the opposite direction. That would be the only sensible thing to do. Well, when the Son of Man returns to judge, it will be final. And few of those things which might seem so important to us now, they won't seem so important on that day. The application for us here is don't look back. I think, I think verse 32 is one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It's not the shortest, but it's one of them. It's only three words long. But what it lacks for in length, it makes up for in power. It simply says, remember Lot's wife. You remember from our reading earlier on, John read for us how, how Lot flees Sodom before, before the city is destroyed. He's a man who loves God. And, and so what does he do? He gets out of the city as soon as he possibly can. But Lot's wife, she, she lingers. She, she looks back. Why? Well, it seems she couldn't bear to think of all her home and all her possessions being caught up in that fire. She herself was safe. She was, she was out of the city, wasn't she? But her heart was very much still in Sodom. She looked back, and so she turned to salt. Friends, it is possible to be a professing Christian, people who, who claim to have found safety, people who believe we've escaped the fire when he returns. It's possible to be that. And yet our hearts can still be very much bound up with this world. And when Christ returns, all will be revealed. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. You can't hedge your bets in the light of Jesus' return. Look, just look at verse 33. Jesus can be clearer, could he? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. If, if our lives are, are all bound up with this world, if, if uh, our status and, and what people think of us really, really matters to us, if our, um, our homes and our possessions, if our wealth and our, and our riches if our heart is very much there well on the day that Jesus returns we will lose absolutely everything but, but if our lives and our hearts are bound up with Jesus to that forgiven status that he confers to us to that eternal home that we have with him 
to those imperishable riches that never perish, spoil or fade. On that day that the Son of Man returns, we will gain everything. His return will be final. So don't look back. We've got no reason to look back. Next, Jesus tells us his return will be divisive. Verse 34. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. If it wasn't already obvious, when the Son of Man returns, not everyone will be saved. When uh, the flood came on the earth, a few people were saved in the ark. Most people died. When fire fell on Sodom, a few people fled the city. Most people died. Jesus wants us to know that this final division that will occur on the final day, it will impact even our closest of relationships to the very closest relationships we have. So imagine, this is a painful reality for some of us I know, but within our marriages, some of us are Christians, some of us are not. Within the marriage bed, one will be taken, the other left. There will be a division. In your offices, in your workplaces, two women grinding corn. One will be taken, the other left. Jesus' return, it will be divisive and to the most personal degree. So I wonder if the application here for us is so so we should try and get our loved ones safe. Try and get them safe. You see, I remember when when Lot was told of the destruction coming to Sodom, what did he do? He went to find his his sons-in-law, didn't he? And he said, quick, flee the city. Let's get out of the city. they, They thought he was joking. No, fire from heaven. You're having a laugh. No, you're not. Not fleeing the city, not for that. So Lot, he goes and finds his daughters and his wife, and they heed the warning and they get out of the city. If we love our families, if we love our friends, if we love our colleagues, we will do all we can to get them safe. No, they will not always listen. Lot's sons in laws show us that, don't they? And yes, there are complexities when it comes to trying to witness to our family and to unbelieving spouses. It's difficult, I know. But at the very least, this should be on our agenda, shouldn't it? This should be on our hearts. That on that day, there wouldn't be this awful division. If Jesus' return will be this divisive, let us not just sit back and watch as our, as our families, as our friends, as they walk blindly into this storm, not even knowing what's coming. Do they even know about the coming judgment? Do they, do they even know there is a way to be saved? Well, friends, they can know if we tell them. This return will be divisive. We, we must try and get our loved ones safe. Finally, it will be universal. It will be universal. It seems as if in verse 37, our, our final verse, it seems as if the disciples don't really get what Jesus has been saying. They, they ask him, where, Lord? Where will this judgment take place? It it seems as if they they think the Son of Man's return is only going to impact a certain locality. Those evil people of Sodom. It's going to get them. Or those wicked, uh, heretical Samaritans we met last week. It's only going to affect them. Or maybe it's going to be those awful Romans, the overlords. Maybe it's just going to get them. They haven't got it, have they? 
Jesus sets them straight. He replied, verse 37, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. I've done a bit of Wikipedia research this week. Um, You always know it's a sign of a good preach when you have a Wikipedia um, quality research. But I'm told that most birds, get this, most birds have no sense of smell. They have very keen eyesight, but next to no sense of smell. The exception is the vulture. Did you know this? The, The turkey vulture, which is the one which we always see on TV, has the most extraordinary sense of smell. It circles up in the air, often impacts in all sort of flocks. That's probably a better way of putting it. <laughs> and um, they, they circle around, and, and they, they can smell rotting flesh from miles away. It, it gets carried on the wind up, up in the gusts. And, and the, as soon as they, they get this scent, they, they all descend upon it, and then they land on the corpse, and then pick the corpse clean until it's just, it's just bones. Well, that's what Jesus says here. What's his point? Well, just like a vulture is found wherever there's a corpse, they get there, don't they? Well, so judgment will be found wherever there is a lack of spiritual life, wherever there is spiritual decay. I think in the first place, Jesus is warning his own people here, the nation of Israel, that they're in a state of spiritual decay. Jesus is saying the judgment is coming for them. But not just for them over there, the Samaritans, and not just for the Romans, and not just for the Sodomites. No, this is for them. And unless they recognize their Messiah. So we too must ask ourselves, do we show evidence of spiritual life? Or are we in a state of spiritual decay? Are we like Lot's wife? Outwardly, seemingly saved, seemingly out of the city. And yet our heart, very much there. Spiritually dead. As I close, I'd like to address two groups of people here today, two little bullet points on your, on your sheets. Firstly, it might be you're here today and you're looking in still on, on Christian things. You're still investigating the, the claims of Jesus. If that's you, let me urge you to recognize your king before it is too late. You remember how, how a passage began. The Pharisees are standing face to face with Jesus, yet they do not recognize him. Like Rico in that little foyer didn't recognize Prince William. Well, there he is. There they are with Jesus. They don't recognize him. They, they want more signs, and yet they're ignoring all the signs that have already been given to them. Well, some here tonight, maybe, it's past time that you recognize your king. Perhaps you've been coming to church for a while. Perhaps you've been hearing about Jesus' teaching, Jesus' deeds. And you could endlessly delay a decision about him, couldn't you? You could always, I want to hear a bit more. I want to hear a bit more. Well, Jesus is staring at you in the face. He's right in front of you. Let me urge you to run to him. Make him your safe place. Because friends, very soon it will be too late. The day of the Son of Man will be sudden. It will be a normal day, just like this. We'll be going about our normal business, but then it will be too late to get to safety. You might think, why? come on, is Jesus guilty here of scaremongering? Is he just trying to scare us? Is that what he's trying to do here? No, not at all. Here is a loving warning from the loving king. Here is a warning from the man, from the king, who is, as he speaks this, on his road to Jerusalem, on the road to the cross, on the way to be crucified and to suffer for us, determined to take the blast of God's wrath in order that we might be safe. Friends, get safe while you still can. Run to your king.
recognize him. If that's you here tonight, please come chat with me afterwards. I'd love to explain a bit more about what that might look like. I'd love to share with you a little bit. Please come chat with me afterwards. But for most of us here tonight, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're thinking, well, that, okay, that's for them, but what about most of us here? We're probably thinking, I've been following Jesus for a while. I've uh, recognized him as my king. I've run to him for safety. I'm in him. Like, like I said earlier, I think the challenge for us here is notice most of this passage is addressed not to the unbelieving outsider, not to them over there, but for us in here. The challenge for us is to live now in the light of his return. Think of everything that we've seen in this passage. The thing which personally struck me most is just those three words. Remember Lot's wife. Here's a question. Is our heart with Christ and what lies ahead? Or is our heart very much bound to this world? Our possessions, our status, our money, stocks and shares, following them closely. John Wesley is an evangelist in the 18th century. He was once asked, John, what would you do if you knew that Jesus would come back this time next week? And John thought about it for a while. He pulled his diary out of his pocket and he threw it at the guy who asked him the question. And he said, I wouldn't change a thing. I wonder how many of us could open up our diaries as uh, evidence of how we might spend our time. I wonder how many of us could um, open up our Facebook pages as evidence of where we might get our status. I wonder how many of us could open up our bank statements as evidence of how we, uh, where our treasure is. I wonder how many of us could open up our diaries, our Facebook pages, our bank statements and say, yeah, we're living for what is ahead. This is a challenge, isn't it? I think perhaps most of us, we're mixed, aren't we? A big part of us, we're tempted to linger and to look back. What's the solution? What's the answer for us? Well, we don't flee the coming judgment simply out of fear. We're not Christians simply because we're terrified of hell. No. We don't just look back. We look ahead. And we yearn for the king who goes before us. So friends, consider your king. Consider your king who set his face on Jerusalem. Consider your king who who suffered and died for you. For you. Consider your king who has prepared a place for you in heaven. The one who's going to make an end to your sin. The one who's going to put an end to your suffering. The one who's going to make an end to persecution, wipe away every tear. Fix your eyes on him. Strain towards him. Don't look back. Let's pray. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Father, we praise you for our King. We praise you for the Son of Man who not only has authority to judge the earth,
but who has authority to forgive sins. And we praise you that the Son of Man, the one whom you gave all authority, went to the cross for us. Father, help us to fix our eyes on what lies ahead. Help us to yearn for him. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.